see you. We're not a very interactive church, are we? Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. I guess when I asked for it, I get it. That's good. Uh, I hope you had a great week. Thank you guys for leading us in, in song, scripture readings. Um, so good to see you. Uh, I didn't know who would be here when we started singing. There was like five of us. So some people are not on spring break. That's good. <laughs> so welcome. Um, this morning, I just wanted to I wanted to address, uh, you know, we just saying that there are certain things that we believe uh, and they matter for us. Um, and so just, I'll take that water bottle. Thanks, buddy. Uh, um, one of the things that we believe is that, uh, thank you, uh, that Christ is risen. And because he is risen, we have eternal life. Uh, things, these things matter for us. Um, there's there's a, a list of beliefs, you know, written down, even in our own statement of faith that we affirm um, as a Southern Baptist church. And uh, I, I just wanted to use sort of th- that kind of statement to address the, the shootings in Atlanta on, uh, you know, this past week. Uh, and, and I wanted to address as Christians we, we oppose this, the kind of hatred, the, the kinds of uh, things that led up to this killing. We don't know all of the motives behind all of this, but uh, we, we do know that the act in itself was wrong. Christians oppose murder. Christians oppose hate in all of its forms. Uh, and, and we just wanted to, as, as leaders of the church and as elders, if you are uh, mourning in any way, or uh, you wanted to just process with somebody through what happened this past week, we, we would love to talk to you. I know there are ladies in this church that would love to talk to you as well, if, if you're more comfortable talking with a lady and just praying with you. But what I wanted to get across was that we should be mourning with those who mourn right now, L- lamenting over uh, the fact that our world is not like it's going to be when Jesus is reigning in person, uh, but that he is making all of things new. Uh, and in the meantime, when we see sin and, and acts of, of hate and murder, uh, we should lament those things. But we should lament in hope, right? And so I, I just want to call us as the branch, as Christians in this community, to be mourning with those who mourn, lament with those who lament, and, and drawing people into that, um, to be praying together. We don't understand everything. And I was even talking to a couple of friends this past weekend about it. I, I don't know the, all the questions to ask. I, I, I feel awkward about asking our Asian American friends, like, how, how do you interact with this? Like, how how's this made your week? Um, but we press through the awkwardness because we love, right? Because Jesus has loved us. So I'm just going to pray, and, and then we'll get right into the sermon. But uh, if you want to talk uh, either, either about what happened, or, or maybe you're struggling with sexual sin or hatred of some kind, we would love to help you see how the love of Jesus can help you in that, overcome that. So let's just pray together. Father, as we uh, turn to the news um, and, and we see things that are going on around us, um, God, we don't always know how to respond, even, even in ourselves. I, I, I don't know how to respond to these things. But when we turn to your word, we know you have called us to come to you. All of you who are labor and are heavy laden, Come to me, you said, and I will give you rest. 
God, those, those of us who uh, don't know how to respond, those of us who uh, maybe um, uh, still have the lingerings of sin in our own hearts, um, would you forgive us for this? We lament over these sins of, of either hatred or racism or sexism. Uh, God, even the sexual sins in our, in our own minds. God, we, we do not want them to be there. We, we want you to root them out by your love. Father, we, we pray that uh, you would make us a church who is unified in the gospel, uh, in the good news of Jesus, that deals, that has dealt with all of our sins in the cross. We look to you, our crucified Messiah, who took on himself all the hatred of men and the wrath of God. You were despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Would you be, like we sung, would you be our only hope in life and death? And for those who are struggling among us, and even, even our friends in the, in the wider world, would, would, would you help us to ask and answer that question? What, what is our hope in life and death? We belong to you. Hate will not win. Because Jesus in the cross, he took all of that hate in himself and satisfied God's wrath. And now there is only love, a holy love coming out for us. Coming for us. It's tracked us down. In these pews are evidences of your holy love tracking down people like the hound of heaven. Chasing us down. God, we ask that you would do that right here in our city. You would use us to be avenues of your love to other people. Showing them that there is a better way. And that is the way to the cross repenting of our sins and turning to you in hope. So, Father, we lament all of these things. We don't know how to handle them. We don't, we don't know how to deal with them. But we look to you as our only hope in life and in death. God, you, even, even in that catechism, these brothers have written that not even one hair of our head can fall to the ground without you knowing it. God, I pray that our, our trust and our hope would be placed in, in you, the one who knows every part of us. I pray now that as we turn to the scriptures and to Jesus, you would open our eyes to him, that you, you would help us see this one who was the king of the universe, who owns everything, but came to earth to live a life of humiliation, suffer, and die and rise again for our everlasting hope. We pray that you would open our minds to him, open our hearts to him. Oh, Father, open your word to us and open us to your word. God, we ask that no part of us would, would, would resist uh, your call on us, would resist the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to our sin. Would we... Would you help us not to resist the, the repenting and turning to you, believing in you? God, we pray that you would work powerfully among us for your glory and for our good. So open your word to us and let us see Christ, who is our only hope. 
God, we also pray for our, our, our sister churches, our, our churches that are proclaiming the gospel here and abroad. We pray for Trinity Church in Portland and Thomas Terry. God, we ask that as the word is preached there, your name would be lifted up, your kingdom would come, and your will would be done there in Portland. We thank you for how you've used Thomas Terry and Ryan Lister and the other elders at that church to help them transition through a very hard time. And we ask that you would continue that gospel witness there. We pray for power by your word to change your people for your glory. And we ask for uh, many people to come to know you through their witness. We pray for a revival there in Portland through Trinity Church. God, we ask that you would also do that for First Baptist here in Corvallis. As your word is proclaimed in song and in word, and in the prayers, we ask that your people would be conformed into your image, that they may look like you, who is love and joy and peace and patience. They would be a, they would be a, a citadel in this city, upholding your word of truth. It would be grounded in your word. So we ask that you would do this for your glory, even among us. And while you're visiting them, Please do not pass by us. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would meet with us in power to reveal your Son, the Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our soon coming King. In his name, amen. So we're in Mark 12. Uh, you can turn there or scroll there, power up your devices and get there somehow. Mark chapter 12. Uh, I don't know what number of sermon this is, but we were, we were well into Mark. Uh, and uh, we are going to be looking at Jesus' authority uh, again this morning. Um, w when you were growing up, were you like me, constantly questioning your parents' authority? Uh, I would pester them so much with the why question. Am I the only one? Did you? You too? Yeah. It's hard to tell with the masks on whether uh, you're agreeing with me or like judging me. I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, but I would pester them with the why question a lot, right? Uh, and not because, um, not because I necessarily wanted an answer from them, but because I was testing the lines, right? Pushing where, into where, the, where are the rules? I didn't really necessarily like them. Where, who has the authority and who's in charge? I remember asking one too many times, why? Asking my dad one too many times, why, why, why? And hearing those dreaded words. Do you, do you know what the words are? Because I said so. Yeah, exactly right. I'm the dad. I said so. Yeah, those words I promised I would never say to my kids, right? Because I said so. That's why. I wish I were a little more like Jesus and had clever questions. You know, when people question his authority, he has these questions to draw them out. And uh, instead, you know, often I lord my authority over them and just say, well, it's because I said so. You do what I say. <laughs> so sometimes I just, you know, I try to make it really spiritual and say, because children obey their parents in the Lord, that's why. The religious authorities in Jesus' day have been questioning him. 
Uh, maybe you've noticed that in the, in the passages we read, ever since Jesus came into the temple and started throwing stuff over and tipping over and reordering the worship of God's people the way it was supposed to be, the, authority, the religious authorities have been questioning him because his authority clashed with their authority. Right? He, he, was, he had real authority in himself. They had a derived authority. Jesus had real authority, and it, it showed the religious authorities could not compete with him. And the people liked him, and that was bad. That was a power grab uh, in, in their terms. So now they've moved from questioning Jesus to now our passage today where they're trying to trap him. You know, like a little kid who says, who made you the boss of me? Right? Jesus exerting authority. Well, who made you the boss? And they asked Jesus, who, who gave him the right to do all of these things? Who gave him the right to come into the temple and act the way he was acting? They didn't like his answer because he said, my authority comes from God, in essence. Remember, remember my baptism? The Spirit descended on me. The Father said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's where I get my authority. They didn't like that. And now they plan to destroy him. They plan, they plan to trap him in order to destroy him. It started all back in chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Jesus was about to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. And they were there just waiting. And he perceives their hearts and their hypocrisy. And he heals the man right in front of them as if to say, what are you going to do about it? Well, what they were going to do about it is they were going to join the Herodians the Pharisees and the Herodians would join together with a plan to destroy Jesus. And now their plan is moving at breakneck speed. We see Jesus entering into Jerusalem in chapter 11. And as he goes about in this Passion Week, the plan is coming to full fruition. They think that Jesus is taking authority from them. But what they don't realize is that, that actually they never had authority at all. It was always, ultimately, Jesus' authority. The authority that they thought they had was Jesus. So in what they must learn, and what the disciples must learn, and what we must learn, is that because you bear God's image, he deserves your all. Because you bear God's image, he deserves your all. That's sort of the, that's what we're driving towards. That's, I think, what this passage is all about. Because you bear God's image, he deserves you all, your all. So nothing can be held back from him. It's all God's. Everything is God's. And Jesus uses their authority. And Jesus uses their trap to apply his authority in two realms. So we're, we're going to be looking uh, we're eventually going to come to this as we work through the passage, but we'll be looking at it in two points about God's uh, authority and government's authority. And we'll just be asking these questions. How do people relate to government under God's authority? <clears throat> How do people relate to government under God's authority? And then how do people relate to Jesus under God's authority? How do people relate to government? How are we supposed to relate to Jesus? So we'll start in verse 13. It was a Christian's responsibility to the government and to God. It says, uh, chapter 12, verse 13, <clears throat> And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. 
they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his talk. And, and notice the word they, that they sticks out. And you, we should be asking the question, who, who is the they? They uh, sent the Pharisees and Herodians. The they is referring to the antecedent of that is back in chapter 11, verse 27. Is it where it says the chief priests, <coughs> the scribes, and the elders, i.e. the Sanhedrin. It's the Sanhedrin who send these people, uh, the, the Pharisees and Herodians. They send a separate delegation, right? The Sanhedrin have already questioned Jesus, and they've said, who gave you the authority? And Jesus says, points back to his baptism and says, God did. And they don't like it, so they send someone else to trap him, Pharisees and Herodians. And, uh, you know, Mark tells us that these two groups of Jewish leaders, like, form a cabal, you know what a cabal is? Like this, uh, you know, this, this group that uh, meets behind closed doors to, uh, to, 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 you know, to conspire against someone or something, some government. Well, that's what they're doing for, against Jesus. They're forming this cabal. And after Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, they take counsel together. The, Her the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, take counsel with the Herodians uh, the sort of political religious leaders of the time, and the Sanhedrin capitalize on their hatred for Jesus. And they use them, the Pharisees and Herodians, to try to trap him. So the Pharisees were like religious conservatives of the day. Maybe something like conservative evangelicals. The, Her the Herodians were more like mainline Protestants, you know, very left-leaning religiously and politically. All my friends, conservative friends who are in mainline churches are like, no, that's not true of everybody. But just in general, you know, mainline Protestant, left-leaning religiously and conservatively, they don't necessarily believe all the tenets of, of the scripture or evangelical Christianity, and they definitely mostly lean left politically. That's what the Herodians were. Now, conservative evangelicals and mainline Protestants uh, joining together, that's what it would be like. And they're joining together for, because of their common enemy, Jesus. And they decided to work together to destroy him. Why? Why are they doing that? Well, it was because he was upsetting the religious landscape and returning worship back to God. Jesus had been revealing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders all along. He, he had been, he had been showing, showing that they were clean on the outside. Remember in Matthew how he talks about them being uh, like, uh, the only thing I think of is a King James English, like whited sepulchers. So they were really clean on the outside, but the inside they hold dead men's bones. They acted really nice. They acted like religious people on the outside, but on the inside they, they weren't Christians. They weren't, they weren't following Jesus. They weren't following God's, actually God's ways. You can imagine maybe they didn't like that so much, right? So this is why they formed the cabal. So now it's the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sanhedrin, a very powerful group of people plot to destroy Jesus. And they're resolute in this, almost as resolute as Jesus is in heading to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. And Mark gives us insight into their motives. In order to destroy Jesus, they try to entrap him. Did you notice that in verse 13? And they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him 
in his talk. They thought they were the smartest guys in the room. Right? They had a foolproof plan to take down the Son of Man. So the plan was hatched. And now they moved to execute it. Look at verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the, this group of, of men, they, they start with insincere flattery and end with an insincere question. <sighs> They're like Greek actors in a, in a tragic play who come on stage with a mask saying things that they don't believe. The ironic thing is, though, that they, even though they don't really believe what they say, what they say is true of Jesus. Did you, did you notice their description of him? Even though they're, they're dripping with flattery, what they say about Jesus is true. And it stands in condemnation against them. They, they were trying to butter Jesus up so he would trip over his words. But Jesus sees through their insincere flattery and motives right into their heart. But it was true that Jesus was a great teacher. They come to him and they call him teacher. It's true that he was a great teacher. It's true that he did not care about anyone's opinion except for God's. He didn't let people change his teaching, either in his tone or content. He, he was not like, he, he was not swayed by appearances. You know, speaking to a group of people, you can get swayed by appearances sometimes. Like, you just don't know what people are thinking and, and whether they're agreeing with you or disagreeing with you or you're going to have words afterwards. You're just never sure. Jesus was not swayed by any of that. His mind was clear. He was resolute. He did not show partiality. And he truly taught the way of God. They said all of these things in insincere flattery, not meaning them, but everything they said was true. And that's the irony of it all. Here's how the NSB says it. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. And all of that was true of Jesus. So their approach to Jesus is dripping with the poison of flattery. All as a means to set him up for their insincere question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So apparently taxes have always been a really controversial issue. And we're in the month of March, so maybe there's something here for us to remember. But the tax that they're talking about was a poll tax. It was an imperial tax levied on nations who, were, who came under Rome's authority. And I call it an insincere question because the Pharisees, even though they didn't like the humiliation of the tax, uh, they were fine with it. In principle, it was okay. The Herodians actually, <coughs> excuse me, the, th the Herodians actually thought it was the right thing to do. And because they were always currying favor with the, with the Roman government, uh, it, it just makes sense, right? They're politicians, right? So they're, of course, they're going, to, they're, they're going to curry favor with Rome. They didn't care how Jesus answered it. Either way, yes or no, it didn't matter. The whole point was to trap him, right? So if he said yes, that it was lawful, then he would have been condemned by the zealots. The zealots said, if you pay taxes to Caesar, 
you're a, compromi- you're a compromiser, and you're not really worshiping God. The Pharisees nor the Herodians actually believe that. So the question is insincere, but it doesn't matter. They'll be, Jesus, if he says yes, he'll be condemned by the zealots. If Jesus says no, it was not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he would have been arrested by the Roman government. So they had him right where they wanted him, right? Got you where I want you, Jesus. We'll show you to try to take authority from us. We'll show you where the real power is. And now Mark transitions the story to Jesus' response in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. The response starts with his knowing. He, could, he knew it. He could feel it. And he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. You see, Jesus, get to the heart of the matter. Their hypocrisy may have blinded them, but it did not blind Jesus. He saw, he saw right through their flattery and question. And his question and answer gets at their biggest problem. And while it gets at their biggest problem, it also gets at our biggest problem. He knew the hypocrisy of their hearts and called them out. Friends, he knows our hearts too. He knows where we're grasping for authority and not giving true worship to God. So he goes on the stage and rips their masks off to reveal who they really are. It's what the word of God does. That's what questions from Jesus actually do. They take down the hypocrisy and they lay us bare. He says, why are you putting me to the test? Why are you trying to trap me? The reader knows why. Uh, The leaders know why. And Jesus knows why. The question points to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is unbelief. You you can come in and and worship with us Sunday after Sunday. Uh, You you can come and sit and sing the songs. You can even give money. You can give your time, your talent, and treasure to to this body of people. Uh, None of that will save you. And if, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and turn to him, all of, that, all of this is just a show. And that's what he's, he's telling the Pharisees and Herodians. He's pointing out their unbelief. All their questions and all their tested pointed to the, their unbelieving hearts. They had the Son of God right before them. They witness his authority over nature and over the law, and yet they would not believe in him. So he takes all these questions and, uh, of his authority, he takes all their hypocrisy, and he does what Jesus does. He asks them a better question. He tells them, give me a denarius. And someone finds a denarius and brings it before him. And in verse 16, he asks this question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus is getting, he's, he's, he's getting right at the heart of the matter here. The heart of the matter is a question about authority, uh, their, uh, their question of, of worship and who Jesus is. And he's saying, he, he's going to use this coin as an object lesson. So the denarius was a silver coin, like a day's wage. Think of what you make in a day. 
uh, and that would have been equivalent to what they were carrying around, uh, a silver coin, uh, uh, a day laborer's wage. And the fact that one of, it, one of them produced it meant that they were of the privileged class. You know, most people were, not, were uh, certainly not wealthy enough to carry around a coin like that. They had enough for their daily bread. So having an extra coin to show Jesus probably meant uh, that they were wealthy. It certainly wasn't one of the disciples. They were too poor, just fishermen. In fact, um, Jesus is going to use the coin as an object lesson for relating to authority. So he now answers the question, how people are to relate to government under God's authority. All right, finally, to point one, right? Verse 17, how should we relate to government under God's authority? And Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that belong to him. So when someone produced the coin, Jesus co-ops the image and inscription on the coin to teach them about authority. The image on the front was most likely of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription that would have read this on it. What's the inscription? Here's the inscription. Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. He was claiming to be God. And on the, on the backside was a female figure sitting on a throne wearing a crown with, uh, with an inverted spear in her hand and either a palm or an olive branch. And the inscription under that was the high priest. So Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, is claiming to be both God and high priest for this people. The coin represented how the government worked. Caesar was a god and high priest and had this inscribed on the coin itself. So people who had carried around in their, in their uh, money sack would, would have this inscription and, and this reminder all the time of, of Caesar's authority. And they were reminded of it when they used the money. And they were meant not only to buy and sell with it, but if, if they were so inclined, they could use it to worship. Look at Caesar and, and pray to him as they flipped that money to wherever it needed to go. So how were God's people supposed to respond to this? Were they to be like the zealots and refuse to pay because in their minds this was participating in idolatry? You can see how they were getting there, right? Caesar wants to be worshipped. He puts his image on his coin. I am not going to carry that coin around. What does Jesus say, though? Jesus simply says that the way you are supposed to relate to the governing authorities is to give them what is theirs. How are you supposed to act towards them? How are you supposed to relate to them? Give them what belongs to them. One commentator says, in one sense, Jesus was saying, hey, return that filthy, idolatrous coin back to Caesar. Give it back to him. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything in the earth is mine. Caesar can have this little coin. It's all going to burn up anyway. And imposing the head tax was their right. Jesus is saying that. It's their right to impose the tax on them. This is government's right, and this is how God's people and all people should be relating to them. Give back to Caesar what's his. Recognize proper authority. Later on, well, I should say this. Government has an authority that was given by God. And it must be submitted to 
as long as it doesn't cross over the lines that God has established. So later, uh, you know, Christians in Rome were expected to give a little pinch to Caesar as they, you know, they'd go into the marketplace or wherever. A little, little pinch of incense to Caesar just as a, you know, you don't, you don't have to actually worship him in your heart, but just give the pinch to Caesar uh, as, a, as, a, as a form of your unity with Rome. And the, the Roman Christians would not do that because they said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So at some point, it crosses the line. But it, it's, it doesn't negate the point. Government can demand taxes and obedience to laws, but they can't demand worship for themselves from their citizens. Or, and they cannot tell citizens who they can worship. That authority belongs to God alone. And Jesus is saying, give to Caesar, give to the government its due authority because that authority is from God. Now, this teaching has relevance for us in the month of March, doesn't it? What's coming up in April? I think it's gotten extended to May, but April 15th, right? Typically, it's tax day. That's the deadline. Americans go and pay their taxes. You, you are required to, to fill out a form and uh, submit it to the government and render to them what their due is. Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to him. Friends, it is possible for our individualism to lead us astray here. Do you, you know, how do you think about tax season? Do you think first, how can I honor the governing authority over me? The governing authority that God has placed over me? Or do you think that government is an evil in and of itself? And so I will do everything I can to impose it, including not paying taxes. Can governments misuse taxes or, or overburden their citizens with taxes? Sure, of course they can. Jesus doesn't give that as a footnote to God's people on how they're supposed to respond. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as a servant of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. How does, you know, that's Peter. Peter walked with Jesus. What about the other New Testament passages? What, like, what does Paul say about this? Romans 13, 1 through 7 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. How should we relate to government? We should be paying taxes to them. We should be paying the rightful taxes we owe them. Friends, if we're enjoying the things that government does in terms of paving the roads uh, and, and having a public safety and all the things that government does in their rightful place, we should be happy to pay taxes. And unless the government gives you an option, right, an exemption, we can't say, well, I don't like how they're using my taxes, so I won't pay them. Do you remember the coin the disciples found? Jesus said they were, the disciples were told to pay their taxes. They didn't have any money. And Jesus said, uh, go find this fish, open it up, and pay the taxes from what you find inside of it. Inside of it's a coin. They, they pay it. Jesus has them pay taxes to the Roman government, to this Caesar who thinks he's God, and doing all kinds of things to oppress God's people. And yet, Jesus still pays taxes. He doesn't withhold he performs a miracle so his disciples can pay the taxes. How was that money used? We, we don't know all the ways, but it was used for the purposes of the state. And in one sense, he was paying the state that was going to be killing him. Jesus tells us it's not our concern how they use the money as, as much as it is that we respect the governing authorities over us. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get all kinds of questions and comments about this. I'd love to talk to you. I can't nuance it in every way I'd want to. Our concern is to pay, to obey God by paying what we owe. So how should we relate to government under God's authority? Render to Caesar what belongs to him. It's just a coin. It's just money. That lastly leads us to how we relate to Jesus under God's authority. In, in one sense, relating to government is easier, actually. It demands only very little of us. When we relate to God in discipleship, the de he demands everything. Not just taxes. He demands everything. So do God's people owe more than taxes to the government? Yes, they also owe prayer and respect. I, I should have mentioned that earlier. You can look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, and Titus 3, 1. We, we are commanded to pray uh, for the government. But what are we supposed to render to God? We're supposed to render to God the things that are God's. So how does one relate to Jesus under God's authority? Everything, including government, is subsumed under the authority of God. Everything. There's, there's no, where, where's God's realm of authority? Every square inch of everything. Everything is God's. 
And Jesus is the creator and ruler over it all. So having answered their question of whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus now points to the realm of God's authority, which is everything, including government. Governments do not operate outside of the control of God himself. Capitalizing on this image, you know, Augustine says this, unlike the inert and unresponsive physical image of a ruler on a coin, redeemed humans bear the lively image of the living God to whom they belong. So if coins belong to Caesar because they bear his image, then people belong to God because they bear his image. Do you see what demands Jesus is placing on humanity? Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are little image bearers many, meant to represent God and Jesus Christ walking around this earth. And we're supposed to render to God what things are God's. So what about you belongs to you, and what about you belongs to God? Everything belongs to God. Nothing belongs to you. You are a steward of the gifts God has given you. So your work, your play, your family, your worship, everything is God's. Your very identity is his. You, you don't get to form your identity. God made you in his image. And we're stewards of that, and, 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 and we're trying to improve it all the time and, and to become more like him and, and fight sin and all of that. But all of it belongs to God, even the power it takes to improve. So your time, your talent, and your treasure, all of it is his. How does he, how does he tell us to give it back to him? He tells us to give it back to him in spiritual acts of worship, right? In, in worship. So one way to think about this uh, in your own life, time, talent, and treasure kind of makes up everything God has given you to steward, right? This is your discipleship. Time, talent, and treasure. So in Corvallis, in, in our church, what is the most precious commodity, do you think, that we, that we own, that, that God has given us to steward? It's different answers, probably for diff, different ones of us, right? We're a very affluent community, right? So, uh, you know, money can, can be a precious commodity to us, but it's, it's not like we're, we don't have uh, less of it. What do you have less of, do you think? Maybe time? You, maybe you think it's talent, but maybe, maybe it's your time. Maybe it's the, you know, in this, in this, in this age of, uh, of, you know, so much attention being grabbed from you. So much work to be done, right? Schoolwork and, 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 you know, not actual work, but, you know, work that you get paid to do. Uh, and also work, you know, here at the church and discipleship and all of that. You know, God would say to you and to me that we should be 
render to God what's his. What does that look like? Is there any part of your calendar that doesn't belong to God? Maybe your living room needs to be rendered to God for hospitality. What about, you know, checkbook still the right image for our bank accounts? <laughs> what about your checkbook? What about your bank account? What about that should be rendered to God? You know, part of our discipleship friends is to be generous. Generous with other people, but also generous with, uh, with the Great Commission. Well, how, how does the Great Commission continue to happen at this church and at other churches? Well, well the means God has used is for, for people like us to be giving our funds to the church to continue the Great Commission. So the Great Commission can keep going on. So whether I'm a pastor or not, or the next person comes and takes my place, they can be paid to preach the gospel and do gospel ministry. So gospel work can happen here on Sunday so we can rent the building and heat the building and, 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 and have communion and, and, and pay people to do certain things in this church. I, I would just challenge you to, to think about, like, I think we've, we've done a lot of consideration on the finance team about um, what, what it looks like for our offerings to dwindle. Uh, and you know what? I, I'm not preaching this message because of that, but we're just in the, this is just the next passage as we go through the book of Mark. But just considering, like, what does it look like as, uh, uh, for us to, to be good stewards of God's money? Um, you know, we've noticed some trends in terms of giving units. That's, you know, every family unit that gives. Uh, actually has been pretty steady. The trend has been pretty steady. And people here are generous. But not everyone in this church gives. And, and just in terms of our discipleship, like to, to continue the Great Commission and, and, and to see it, you, you know, take, take root here in Corvallis and beyond into places like India where our friends are going, into places like China and Africa. It, ta it, just, it takes monetary funds. Is there any part of your, so I'm not telling you to give a certain amount, but is there any part of your bank account that has not been rendered to God? Now, college students, you may think that you have an out, but anything given to you, friends, uh, is God's. And, and he would love for you, not only your treasure, but also your time and your talents to be rendering that back to him. Doesn't all have to be rendered to this church, but is it be rendered to him for the Great Commission? It's being rendered to him for his glory. What about your life? Or maybe you're, you're like that, that servant who is burying his talent in the ground. Do you have a talent? Maybe you are an evangelist. And, and, and maybe, you're not, maybe you're not cultivating the talent that God is giving you to tell other people about Jesus. Or, or, or maybe God is giving you a real talent for discipleship. And your calendar is just too full with other things in order to render that to God. Friends, I'm not even calling for a radical, for something radical. I'm just asking you to, to look at what God has given you and say, I need to give a portion of that back to God. My time, my talent, my treasure. What does God demand of us? Well, the demands of God, as you can see from the application, and even my discomfort with applying the word <laughs> to us, is that God presses in his demands on us, doesn't he? 
then we see that we belong to God and we must render ourselves to him. It's at this point that we're confronted with the very bad news. The bad news is because we've taken what belongs to God, we've become glory thieves. We've decided that, we've decided who and what we will worship and when we will do it. But it's also at this very point, friends, that we see that Jesus demands a rendering, but he not only demands this rendering, he renders himself in our place. He demands that you render yourself as an image bearer back to your creator. And then he the exact imprint of God's majesty renders himself on a cross. This rendering was for you. So all of you who have failed to render to Caesar what belongs to him, and you who have failed to render to God what belongs to him, the good news is that Jesus made satisfaction for you by taking the wrath of God on the cross. And like we sang already, he was vindicated as the one true ruler by being raised from the dead. So here's what he calls you to do. Repent of your sins and turn to him in faith. All of you who have not rendered properly, have not related properly to government or to God, especially to God, you can sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. The God who demands a rendering has made that rendering for you. You who have evaded on your taxes, God paid the full price for you. Jesus Christ drank down the full cup of God's wrath for you, so none remains. And all this is freely given by God. Isn't this beautiful? The one who demands everything from you actually makes it possible for you to do this rendering because he's rendered his own son as a sacrifice for sin in your place. So we sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would apply this in ways that I haven't even thought of applying it. God, we owe you everything. We we owe you our very lives, our um, more than just our money. We owe you our time, talent, and treasure. And we thank you that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And because of that, we can, we can render it back to you. We pray that you, you would help us to do this. In Christ's name, amen. Now, friends, we are going to enter into uh, communion. And first, you know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 the first thing that we need to be doing is to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. And, and so the communion table is, is just, uh, it's a chance for us to be communing with God, but to be reestablishing that covenant 
with God. And, and that just, that, that starts with confessing our sin to him. So I'll pray a prayer of confession followed by a time, time of silence for personal confession. And that's just a time for us to just say back to God what he said about our sin. Just confess our sins. Just say to God what your sins are. We confess biblically. We confess our lusts. We confess our hatred. We confess our laziness. We confess our greed. We can confess all of that to God, hopefully, because of this one I've been talking about, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for you, who lived a perfect life and paid this price for you. It's also a good time, that time of science and personal confession. If you have children or a family or a friend, this is a good time to, to just talk about what confession actually is, you know, to wrap your arm around your son or daughter and to say, do you have anything you want to confess to Jesus? This is one of the things we're doing in our worship services. And I'm so thankful that our children are among us. They get to see mom and dad's faith and worship being put into practice. So it's, this is not merely a personal time. You know, uh, this is also a time for you to be making things right with other people. Do you have something against somebody in this congregation? You should go to, this would be a great time to go to them and, and, and just say, I've held this against you and I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And maybe it's just between you and the Lord that you need to be, be talking to right now. So I'll pray and I'll give you time for silence for personal confession. Father, we have so much to confess before you. First of all, uh, that you're our only hope in life and death, that everything belongs to you. Everything is yours, including us. You are, um, you are our only hope. We confess that. We confess you as the Redeemer, the Savior, the Keeper of all. And we also confess as we, as we think about it ourselves that uh, we have not lived in light of that confession. So we confess that we have sinned this week in thought, word, and deed, we have, we have sinned against you in ways that we actually don't even know about. God, we pray that you, as you bring those to mind, you would also bring to mind our forgiveness in Christ and assure us that you have forgiven us because you have said, if you confess your sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us now as we take some time to confess to you to also believe in your forgiveness. In Christ's name. Please take a moment of silence for personal confession. Now, brothers and sisters who have confessed your sin, be assured of this. Lift your heads and your hearts. 
be assured that the Lord will save you. Because he has said, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together and we're going to sing and sing in light of the fact that God has saved you. Let's sing together.